Our sermon text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. If you would turn there with me, either because you have your own Bible or because you can look it up in one of the few Bibles, and once you have it, if you would stand, that way we'll know that we're ready to hear God's Word and give honor to it. We're actually looking at verses 8 through 10, but I'm going to begin reading back in verse 6 just to kind of see the flow of of why Paul then begins to say what he says in verses 8 through 10. He says this in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good, and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage here this morning, you you might not see it immediately, but if you start to think, and I hope that we will get you to start to think, you will start to wrestle with Questions like this. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Those are really the questions that, once again, Paul comes back to answer. And you might say, well, Dennis, Paul has answered that question several times in the book of Ephesians. And you're right, he has. And obviously what that means is is that those are right questions that even when people who are not believers ask those questions, they're on the right track. That's a good question. Who am I? Where do I come from? Why am I here? It's a good question. And in fact, as you go in your workplaces, as you operate in your neighborhoods, as you go to school... Wherever you find yourself, we ought to be seeking as Christians in some ways to create a culture where those questions are asked. If you ever ask, well, how do I go witness to people? One of the ways you can start to have an effect in witnessing to people is to create a culture where these kind of questions can be asked because most people are trying to live a life that makes them immune from those questions. See, if I party enough, if I play enough, if I work hard enough, if I keep myself busy enough, I don't really have to ask those questions. I don't really have to think about those issues. And what you to understand is, is that people often don't naturally ask that question because most people are trying to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to ask those questions, or if they do ask them, they want to find answers which they can attain themselves. They want to find answers that let them solve the dilemma. And so what I want you to see is is that Paul, at the very heart of the gospel, continues to come back and draw us to a place where we recognize that anything that leads us to either put away those questions so that they're not relevant to us anymore, 
or if we somehow start to well up within ourselves a desire to somehow fix our problems or solve our dilemmas or think that somehow we've got the answers for all those issues, that we're failing to understand biblical Christianity. That that's not what children of the light are like. See, in some sense, being children of light means that we have a source. Because light always has a source. And so what I want you to see then is that Paul not only is drawing us to ask those questions, but he's also bringing us back to the very beginning, isn't he? In some sense, he's really drawing us back to think about creation so that we would then have a very clear view of recreation. In this passage, he says, he's drawing us to think about the fact that the creator of all things, the one who said, let there be light, and there was, has done the same thing in sinful, wicked sinners' lives and realities. He has said and drawn us to say, Who am I? I'm a creature that was made in the image of God, fallen, deformed, not what I was made to be. Where did I come from? I came from a God who spoke, and it was, but who scooped down is the difference between all of the creatures and us. He scooped down and out of His creation formed a man. Everything else He said, let it be, and it was good. But when He had formed the man, He said, it's very good. Now things are as they ought to be. Now the one for whom all the rest of this created order was made has been put into place. And so we see the realities of what God was drawing us towards was that God would have a relationship with man. In 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 6, it says this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. This is Paul speaking. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, here's the point of how this relates to our passage, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the very image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So the reality here is, is that what Paul begins to turn to now and begins to say, look, walk in love. And what that means to walk in love is to put away foolish practices, to not walk as people who really are looking hatefully. They operate with hatred. They operate with self-centeredness and selfishness. Don't operate that way. See, that's what he said. Love is the opposite of that type of activity. 
Now he comes and says, okay, walk as children of light. And he says that light has come in, has broken in to the darkness which you were. So the first thing I want us to look at is our need of light. One of the things this confronts, and Paul continues to confront, in fact, the whole of Scripture confronts, is the idea of two things. That I'm okay, and that I have a right to be autonomous. See, part of the problem with many Christians who say, well, what about free will? What they're really arguing for is not free will. What they're really arguing for is autonomy. See, free will is the ability to choose, to make a choice. And obviously human beings have the ability to make choices. What they do not have is autonomy. Autonomy is the right to decide what the choices ought to be. One of the illustrations I've loved to use over the years is to have someone when I'm sitting in Starbucks and ask them, look up at that menu. Are you free to choose anything you want off that menu? If you have enough money? Absolutely. Pick anything you want. I mean, you can get anything, a frappuccino of any sort. Coffee. But there's a limit to it, isn't there? What's it limited to? The menu. Which you didn't make. And sometimes, if you're a faithful, loyal customer, sometimes that menu changes. And you get really irritated because the thing you loved, that great drink that you used to go in there on a regular basis to get, all of a sudden they take it away and you go, why? Why did you take that drink away? Well, because we decided that we wanted to move in a different direction. And so what are you left with as a customer? You're left with a decision. Some sense, choose this day where you will drink coffee. See, life has real choices and there are real consequences to those real choices. But you understand that you don't have autonomy because you don't get to make the menu. You don't get to decide what's good and bad. You don't get to decide what's right and wrong. You don't get to decide what options are available to you. There's only one being in the universe that has autonomy. It's the living God. That's it. And see, that's the real struggle that we're confronted with is the reality that only God has the ability to do and plan and accomplish everything He sets out to do and plan and accomplish. And one of the things we have to come and understand in the light is our need to be told that and reminded that and reflecting upon that. Because if we don't, then what happens is, is we begin to well up within ourselves pride and a desire somehow to have our will and not God's will done. It makes us angry when 9-11's happened. It makes us mad when people die young. It frustrates us. And we're left with a quandary. Does God know what He's doing? Because, see, if we don't believe that he knows what he's doing out there, we're never going to be people who realize that he knows what he's doing right here. See, we don't realize the subtlety of our lives, that oftentimes the realities that are going around us is we really want to convince ourselves we don't need 
the light of God. We want to become sufficient unto ourselves. We want to explain it in ways that make sense to us rather than face the realities that sometimes what we have to say is only God knows why. And it may be something as simple as, Lord, we've been traveling all day and the last thing I wanted to do when I got home was to go traipsing around a hot Tucson in a van to get the air conditioning fixed and then to go traipsing around Tucson to get a battery to put in my car, which still didn't start and didn't start this morning. I don't want to spend my time. And why, with everything else that needs to be done, is this happening? And see, at some point, if we don't recognize our need for God and our recognition that oftentimes He knows better what we need than we do ourselves, we're going to be very frustrated, angry, irritated people. And isn't it interesting that oftentimes this is how Christians operate? Angry, irritated, and frustrated. And what Paul is drawing us to here is to say, you ought to walk in the light. You ought to be people of the light. And the first thing you have to come to is to understand you need the light. Now, it's really important for us to think about this because Paul doesn't just say that you were once in the darkness. Look at the text. It's really striking here what he says. For at one time you were darkness. Now, understand what that does to our understanding of ourselves. It means you can't just say, well, all that bad stuff out there. You were darkness. That means that human beings, apart from Christ, are darkness. So that has to start to do something to how we process other people. One of them is... Are you ever, or should you, maybe the better question is, should you ever be shocked when unbelieving people do unbelieving things? They're darkness. They don't just live in the darkness. They are a part of the darkness. They reflect the darkness. So one of the things that needs to make us recognize is, is that people who are not believers, who are not children of the light, what is the first thing they need? Light. Outward conformity does them no good because all they will do is take outward conformity and pervert and pollute it and turn it into something it's not. What they need is light. We're not going to look at so much this week, but we will next week. What is the source of that light in this world? How is it operating in this world? The first thing I really want us to see is our need of the light. The darkness then denotes ignorance, denotes error, denotes evil. That's what darkness represents in this passage. Ignorance, error, and evil. Now, Paul is talking about something very important for us, and it's a doctrine that we need to at least touch on as we talk about our need of the light. The one thing he's saying is you were darkness, so what we need is for light to shine into our darkness. What we need is the doctrinal word that you can put in your, in your theological cap is regeneration. What we need is to have the dead brought to life. 
What we need is to see the valley of dry bones of Ezekiel 16 blown across by the Spirit, by the breath of God, and enlivened, brought to life. And so Paul here is really saying, you have been regenerated. You have been jump-started. You were dead. You were darkness. And light has shone into you, and you're now alive. You're now apart. You were brought out of a kingdom of darkness and brought into a kingdom of light. That Colossians says you were brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Think about how striking that is because Paul's saying the same thing here, isn't he? He says you were brought out of a kingdom of darkness. You were darkness and you've now been brought in the light. You're now children of the light in the Lord. It's not just about being brought into the light unto yourself. Your whole ability to be light is directly related to whom you're connected to. Which brings us then to the second point I want us to look at this morning, which is the source, our source of light. Paul says that we are light in the Lord. And this again reminds us back to Paul's discussion of the fact that we are united to Christ. It is not something we bring in ourselves. And this is something that's really hard for us especially as Americans, especially as Americans in the West, where our frontier spirit wants to once again rise up. We want to be bootstrap people, and we're pulling ourselves up by them. And the reality is, is that the gospel constantly comes to us and tells us, you cannot do that. It constantly reminds us that we need something outside of ourselves. We needed it to get into the kingdom, we need it to stay in the kingdom. We need it to ultimately arrive in the fullness of the kingdom. We need a source outside of ourselves. And I think that's why Paul continues to be very emphatic. You were this, and now you're this in the Lord. You're now this in Christ. You're now this because of someone else. Not ever because of you. Don't ever become confused about that. Don't ever allow sanctification, our pursuit of holiness, to ever be confused with the work of Christ and the realities that that is to us. That is the heart and soul of the gospel. That somebody else did what we could never do for ourselves. We had a source of righteousness. We have a source of life. We have a source of obedience and goodness. And it's Christ Himself. And if we're not connected to Him, no matter what we do, no matter what we say, no matter what we spend our days doing, we will ultimately find that we were and are darkness. I think one of the striking statements in the Gospel of Matthew is when Jesus looks at these people who say, Lord, didn't we feed the poor in Your name? Didn't we visit people in prison in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? And some translations don't get it full, so you don't really catch the full weight of it, but actually what it says in the Greek is this. Jesus says, depart from me because your works were not authorized. See, if you're not connected to Christ, you can do all the right things. But at the end of the day, what you will hear 
is your works were not authorized. No condemnation of what you did. Is it good to feed poor people? Of course it is. Is it good to help people who are in prison? Of course it is. Of course those things are good things for people to do. But if you're not connected to Christ, they at the end of the day accomplish nothing. And what you will hear is, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Now, maybe sometimes we don't catch the full weight of that, but I think we need to because if we catch the full weight of it, we all of a sudden become people who say, do you see how great Christ is? And we begin to capture what the earlier saints seem to always have in their hearts. I am nothing. He is everything. I have nothing I bring to the table. He brings everything. He sets before me a banqueting table. His banner over me is love. See, we begin to become people who are enraptured by the source of light because we realize that we have nothing apart from the light. And if we don't get that, then we never really get the whole heart of what obedience, what good works, what fruit really amounts to. These are the overflow and the reality of people who've been connected to Christ. I want you to think about this. There's a sense in which as we become people who, are, who know that Christ is the source of our life, we become keenly aware of the reality that if our life is like a garden, if, our, if we were once a desolate wilderness and God brought light into our lives and poured out His Spirit upon us and we become like a garden, well, that garden has to be tended to. That garden has to be watched over. But there still remains some giant oaks and some huge boulders that in this life we're never going to remove. And I don't know, again, to see, it's one of those things that, going back to the first point, I don't know why God didn't just go, Dennis, perfect. It sure make my life a lot easier. And for some of you in this room, it would make your life a lot easier if he just went, Dennis, perfect. And it would probably make for other people who know you if he would say, Alicia, perfect. Jane, perfect. Michael, perfect. I mean, wouldn't it be great if he did it that way? But for whatever reason, he didn't. And the reality that the saints have known throughout the generations, both Old and New Testament saints have known is that apart from the Lord, I accomplish nothing. I always stand in need of Christ. And if I want to see the graces of God growing in me and the putting away of the vices, I ultimately have to see that reflected, that exemplified in the person and work of Christ for me and the reality of His Spirit at work in me, which makes me a person who is not ashamed to say, I need another. You know, I've heard people throughout the years say that Christianity is just a crutch religion. Praise Jesus for the crutch. It's not really a crutch religion. See, people don't understand it. It's basically, I was a dead, mangled mass of dry bones out in the middle of nowhere, and Christ has come into my life and made me alive. Put sinews back together. Put flesh on my bones covered me 
in the skin of His righteousness. That's the reality. I am nothing without Him. He is everything. And this is the heart and soul which makes us able to agree with John the Baptist. He must increase and I must decrease. Not because I hate myself, but because I love Him. And so in comparison to how I love Him, it looks like I hate myself. The third thing then that I want us to see is our walk. And so Paul comes back to the text here and he says this. He says in parentheses, Walk as children of light, and in parentheses, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. How do I know what those things are? Well, again, it drives me back to the source, doesn't it? Where would I see what is good and right and true? Watch the evening news. Watch Fox. Watch CNN. Well, you know, the BBC, surely they've got it right because they're not part of our system. So, you know, they've got an outward. Who do I look? Who do I look for the source? Al Jazeera? You see, I want you to understand that what ultimately, as we think about walking in the light, what that ultimately drives us back to is it keeps driving us back to the source. Where would I find what is good and right and true? Only in the face of Christ. Only in His person and work. That's the only place I can go to and say, what does it look like when a man is good and right and true? Where else would I find truth? Where else would I find integrity? Where else would I find these things but in Christ? And so again, as we begin to think about walking in the light... We need to realize that the fruit of the light is not something that I can somehow conjure up in myself. If I just learn enough rules and regulations, if I learn enough things, I can't get it in me. That fruit is something that is a result of what God is doing in me. It comes out of me. It's a reality that's at work in me. But it's something that I basically begin to cherish and nourish and seek to display it by my actions. It's not something I somehow can conjure up in myself. Goodness, then, is a thing that being adapted and made useful for the purpose it was made. That's really what goodness is about in Scripture. Goodness is the reality of something being turned towards what it was made for and being serviceable. It's ready to be used. Think about the temple. You took a common pot, and you, the same kind of pot Mama might be using in the kitchen was brought into the temple, and somehow it all of a sudden became something that was useful and serviceable to the Lord. It was Goodness. That's not to say it was badness in the kitchen. I'm just saying that the idea was that when it was connected with the Lord, it all of a sudden became something that was holy. Not because somehow the material of it was different. You go over and squeeze an unbeliever on the arm, guess what? Their arms squeeze just like yours. And to the degree that they've made it into the gym or whatever, it might squeeze a little more or a little less. But the reality is, is that it's still human flesh. The point is, is that you've been transformed and changed to a holy use. A good use. The idea then of rightness is the fact that we have a standard which is the conformity to the character of God. If Jesus wasn't conformed to the character and the image of God, how could it be said that He is the very image? And it's not just talking about His divinity. It's talking in His humanity as a human being, Jesus did what the first Adam failed to do, and that was to reflect in His entire life reality of the image of God and conformity to the very character of God. And again, we're called to the same thing, to reflect the character of God. 
Do we do it perfectly? Do we do it flawlessly? No, but that's what we're called to. And the final thing then is truth. Seeing reality truly. And that's something we all have a hard time doing. I've been gone for several weeks, and one of the things as I was talking to some people, I went to a seminar at General Assembly, and one of the things the guy said to me, he said, you know what the definition, or he said to the group that was there in that conference, he said, you know the definition of insanity? Continuing to do the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. That's what insanity is. Now, how many times do we go through habits in our lives doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result? It's kind of like this. Well, dentist, I brush my teeth every day, every, every day, morning and night, sometimes noon, if I'm home on Saturdays. Well, but dentist, have you been flossing? Well, not like I should. No, I didn't ask you not like you should. Have you been flossing? under? Well, no. Well, that's why you've got periodontal problems. Now, the problem is, is that guess the only way I'm going to solve those problems is to guess what? It's to brush my teeth more, right? Because that's what the dentist asked me, right? He asked me, was I flossing more? So my cure is to go keep brushing my teeth. Now, the cure is to start flossing, which means I have to start doing something differently than I was doing it before to actually benefit myself. Men and women, that is what sanctification in many ways is is a reality of the truth shining into our world and showing us the reality is is that many of the things that are happening in your life is because God has said this and you keep doing this and you're convinced that if you just keep doing this with enough sincerity, it will change. And I can assure you it will not. You can read your Bible every day faithfully in the same chair as many of the quiet time books tell you to do and Keep your journal and do all those things. But if your heart attitude isn't, Christ is everything. I want to do what is pleasing to Christ. What do you think is going to be accomplished by that? You can sincerely get up every morning and read it. You can sincerely pray. But if your heart is not desirous of the things of the Lord, what does it accomplish? And see, that's where Paul gets to that last part. He said, this fruit needs to be a reality in your life for the purpose of what? Discerning what is pleasing to Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean to discern what you already know is pleasing to Jesus. What I'm saying is is that the whole heart of being able to discern in life, when life throws you all kinds of curveballs, what is really being said here, the word is being used, is so that you know as life's throwing you all these things, the Bible's not a guidebook which answers every one of life's problems. What do I do when I'm talking to my sister and she's had her fourth abortion? By the way, that's not my sister, just for the record. But I'm saying what if you're talking to your sister and that's her reality? What if you're talking to a brother-in-law who's decided that he's leaving his wife because he's become a homosexual or believes he's a homosexual? What do you do in those situations? See, we understand that that's sin, but what do we do with those people? And See, we do have to start asking questions like, how does Jesus handle sinners? What would be pleasing to Jesus? What does He do with them? And where does that drive us back to? The gospel.